Thank you. <clears throat> good morning. Well, it's good to be with you here this morning. We're looking forward to September and uh, helping you have your eyes pop open with... Uh, by the way, do, does that happen to you when you're reading the Bible and you've read something that you've read many times and uh, all of a sudden the Lord opens it up and you see it? I love the Bible because I've been reading it for 39 years and it still does that to me. It's an amazing, amazing book. Um, I want us to uh, turn to Romans 15 as our text this morning. uh, And then what I'd like to do is uh, we've created a tradition at our church and uh, it is to show the difference between the actual Word of God and the preacher's exposition of the Word of God, which we all hope will be accurate. Uh, but God's Word is infallible and without error. Uh, I'm going to try to exposit it uh, without error too, but being a human, you know, who knows what can happen. So what we have done in our church is we ask our congregation to stand during the reading of God's Word to acknowledge that difference. And, uh, and then, uh, so if you'd stand, I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 14. And then I'm going to uh, ask us to pray, and then you'll be seated for the message. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the Lord, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, as Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Let us pray. Our Father, may we better understand 
the excitement and the encouragement the Apostle Paul expresses here about the Romans. May we grasp how that same excitement is there for us. May we um, somehow come to see just how useful your word is in us and how useful we can be to ourselves and to each other as we allow the word of God and the power of the Spirit to take its proper place. We yield ourselves to you and to your word this morning. We pray that you'll give us all ears to hear, that we grasp and understand things that we may not have seen as clearly before as we may today. May you accomplish your purposes in us as we give you our full attention. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to give you just a quick uh, little bit of background. The um, Romans, of course, are uh, a relatively new group of believers. Um, they, we don't know exactly how long they had been saved when they got the epistle. But we do know this, that the pattern that the Apostle Paul had was one of, of hearing about uh, new works started up by, say, Peter or John who would visit Ephesus or Philippi or whatever, and then uh, he would follow a little later, and he would instruct them of some of the deep things of the faith and give them a, a real foundation for what they believed. And he established churches based upon that new group of people. In fact, he would go through the area and identify from his teaching and from his, his getting to know some of the individuals who would be the most qualified to be in the leadership of a new community of believers, a fledgling church. And, and sometimes on his second missionary journey, he would then appoint elders and ordain them so that there was some kind of a governmental structure for the church to be, be organized and, and grow. The problem with the Romans, you see, is that Paul had not been able to make it to Rome. And he hadn't been able to tell them the things that he normally told believers when he came to an area and got them better, uh, better uh, set on the rock of solid foundations of doctrines and beliefs. And so what happens here is he has to write this letter to them because he can't wait any longer, you see, to keep from them the information that he can impart to people in his gifting. He can't wait for them to know how they got saved by faith alone and all the marvelous things that are in the book of Romans. I, for one, I hope you are, am extremely grateful to God that Paul didn't get to Rome when he normally would have in his travels because we wouldn't have had the book of Romans. So we have all this information in this bigger book, and I think that's exciting. Uh, this is the kind of stuff he told churches when he came to them. And I'm sure most of you have read through Romans. If you haven't, it's delicious. You need to put that on your menu and get to that meal as soon as possible. I've been through Romans many, many times in my reading. I've preached through it verse by verse once. And uh, it's just rich 
and rich and rich. And in this previous chapter that leads up to the text that we're looking at, Paul has been addressing the Romans in the area of being careful not to be judgmental toward one another over issues that are not clear black and white issues about doctrine or about behavior. There was some there was some mix-up in their minds about meat offered to idols and whether you should do this or do that and uh, people who eat only vegetables and people who shouldn't. You know, there's just all this kind of thing there. Uh, theologians often call gray matters. There's some, what do you do? And the bottom line in chapter 14 is, first of all, to be sensitive to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Their consciences might convict them that certain things are wrong when really those things aren't wrong. But if their consciences convict them that they're wrong, then uh, they should abstain from that kind of choice or that kind of behavior or activity. But those of us who might say, well, there's nothing wrong with that, you know. There's no real such thing as demons or idols. I mean, they're demons, but there's no such things as other gods. And so if, if meat is offered to an idol uh, by people who don't understand, and then they sell that meat a little cheaper on the market, well, heck, heck take advantage of their stupidity and get the cheaper meat. Um, it's just meat. It's nothing has changed with the meat, is essentially what Paul is saying. He said, but no, you, you need to be respectful because the bottom line is, a, is, a, is an illustration for all of us, and that is that things are right or they're wrong, but sometimes we don't always know what, those, what the end result is. And it's very, some things are very, very clear in Scripture, and we're grateful for that. But in those areas where you're not quite sure, like, for example, in our day, you might say, I don't think there's anything essentially wrong with going to a movie. It's what the movie's about. And, and so someone would say, well, this movie I would recommend. And someone else would say, well, don't you know that there's this one scene in that movie? And so you might say, well, you know, as long as there's that one scene in that movie, in my conscience I'm thinking it would be wrong to see that movie. And somebody else says, it's not a problem to see that movie. What do we do about that? Well, the bottom line for Paul is if you believe it might be wrong, then something in you that's Christian says, I don't want to have anything to do with anything that's wrong. So if I think that it might be wrong, it's off limits for me. Just, just thinking that something might be wrong and then going ahead and doing it anyway reflects the attitude you have about sin. And of course, I'm not preaching in the text I'm at yet. But I'm just giving you some background. So from that, Paul then says, we who are among, we, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. He tells us to be other-oriented. He tells us to be concerned about ministry to other people and serving other people and not placing our own interests first. The way he says it in Philippians, consider others' interests more important than yourself. He ends this section, and I'm going to begin with the ending of the section that I read and then go back and pick a few things out for us in the time that I have. You notice how he says in verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, now, before we talk about the satisfaction in the, uh, I think it's the King James Version, uh, he says, I am confident about this, or it might be the New American Standard. I'm using the English Standard Version, that one that just came out, because I found out that's the one that Paul actually had himself, so I'm, <clears throat> I'm trusting that. 
And he's expressing to these Romans, I am confident, I'm satisfied, I'm, I feel good about this, I'm secure in, in this about you Romans. And what is that? It's amazing what he says here. That you are full of goodness and you are filled with all knowledge and you're able to instruct one another. Now other translations say you are competent to counsel one another as, instead of able to instruct. Some say able to admonish one another. He's talking to them about their competence and their abilities and their skills in a particular area, instructing one another, counseling one another, admonishing one another. That word that's used right there that's translated as different ways is the word nutheteo, which we get nuthetic from that your pastor mentioned earlier in the National Association of Nuthetic Counselors. It's a Greek word, and there's, there's three components in the history of that word that kind of explain it. One is, is that nutheteo means you... In your desire to instruct somebody or to counsel someone or to um, admonish someone, or it's also translated warn in some passages, uh, there is a care about people. You see something in someone that you care about. You love them. And something's just not right. They could be hurting. They could be doing something wrong. Something's not right, and you care. And you care, and I like the way Dr. J. Adams puts it into three C's so I could remember it. He says you care about somebody. And you care about them so much that you see confront them about it. Now, I don't prefer the word confront because it has negative connotations. Nobody likes to be confronted. Most of us are uncomfortable with confronting. Is that right? But it's a C word, so it helps us remember it. The idea behind it is that you care enough about this person that you want to get involved, and you want to get involved, and you initiate some conversation, and you talk with them about it. So it doesn't sound so negative to talk about a confrontation, but it does mean you get involved. And the third C, he says, it's because you, need, you want to help them make some changes so that their lives will improve. So you care enough to minister to someone directively so that you can help them change. That's what the word nutheteo has in in its heart. And Paul is saying to the Romans, that's you, that's you Romans. And I'm confident that you can do that. You're able to minister to one another and help each other resolve difficulties and problems and things that you see. And he says there's three reasons for that. One, your brethren... He says, you're brethren, which means what? You have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the comforter, the counselor. You have what it takes to do this kind of work. And second, he says, you're filled with knowledge. Or second was, you are uh, something with goodness. What is it? You're full of goodness. Yeah, I wondered about that. Paul has never been to Rome. He's never met any of these people. He doesn't know them personally. How can Paul say, you're full of goodness and filled with knowledge? Well, he's saying it by faith. Well, he's saying it really because he has heard they are genuine believers in Christ. And he knows that with that package comes all of this stuff. Now, how much knowledge do the Romans have? Really, think about it. In fact, when they're 
reading this letter, they're just now learning about faith, grace, salvation, that Jesus was given for our life and nothing will separate you from the love of God, nothing high or low. I mean, all the stuff we appreciate in Romans, they're just hearing it for the first time. How could they be filled with all knowledge? Well, it's enough knowledge to counsel one another. It's enough knowledge to conquer problems in your own life. And let's put it this way. Let's, let me step on your toes for a moment. Is that okay? Everybody in this room right now who's been saved at least six months probably know and been going to this church already probably knows more than the Romans knew when they got the letter. That's a pretty safe guess. You have more knowledge in this room, most of you, than the Romans did when they got this letter. And Paul says, based upon the knowledge they had, he's confident that they can do the counseling that's needed in the body of Christ, one with another. Is that profound? Is that something that makes you say, wow? Because you know what? In our culture today, we don't think we're capable of counseling squat. And not only if we have problems, whether it's anxiety or worry or fears or depression or whatever kinds of problems people have today, the common problems people have, we're not equipped to understand those problems. We're not equipped to solve them ourselves. We're not equipped to help somebody else solve those problems. The world has us thinking that in order for us to get better with those kinds of problems that are common, we need to go out to the world, to professionals who wear white coats, lab coats, and say things like... uh, Fancy language and disorders and this kind of stuff. And by the way, take this medication. We have no faith in God or his word and the power of the spirit and the knowledge in everybody in the body of Christ. Where Paul has tremendous faith in all of that. He's saying that you and I don't need to go out to the world. We need to talk to each other. We need to find out what the scriptures say. Isn't that good news? And so Paul encourages him. Now let's take a look backwards and see what he's saying in this chapter about this. He says, he's saying, what is, what's going on with this, this counseling that needs to be done that uh, you people are capable of doing in Rome? Well, back in verse uh, 1 and 2, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Not to please ourselves. That means you and I who right now might be doing quite well in our life. Things are going pretty decent. We have uh, pretty stable Christian lives. We're not depressed right now. We're not anxiety ridden. We're not worried, sick. We're not fearful. We seem to be stable. What do we do? We just sit back and say, I'm doing pretty, pretty good now. There's a lot of people in my church that are suffering. I don't know what's wrong with them, but I'm sure thankful I'm doing okay. That's not Paul's heart. Paul is saying, we who are strong ought to bear with those who are failing. That means we we need to to look for others and say, you know, I see that you've really been down quite a bit lately. You look sad. Almost every, can I talk with you about that? Can I help you with that? Well, I've been depressed about something. And you say, well, um, let's talk. 
That might be scary for some of us because you would think that if you're going to talk to somebody who says, I'm depressed, I have depression. In fact, I've been diagnosed with unipolar or bipolar. I've been diagnosed with this kind of depression, that kind of depression. Most of us in this room would say, well, don't talk to me. I don't know what to do with that. Well, you know, we've counseled all those kinds of depressions right from the Scripture. Every one of them. And so can you. The problem is you've got to see it. You have to see it. You have to see it for what it really is. I like to tell people what you want to do is just remove the fancy names that the world has put on people's problems. Just remove the fancy names. Don't be intimidated. Call things what the, what the Bible calls them. For example, I'm off the subject, but this happens all the time when I'm talking. <laughs> what would you do if somebody came to you, as one came to me many years ago, and they had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia? What would you do? You'd probably say, excuse me, I have another appointment. (laughs) But, you know, somehow I had never counseled a paranoid schizophrenic yet. And when they said, can you take the case? And I said, sure. Now, did I know what to do? No. (laughs) Being honest with you, no. But I had already counseled all kinds of depressions. I had already counseled all kinds of stuff. And I had learned that I don't need to be intimidated by labels that the world puts on people's problems. And so what I did was I thought through this. And I sat there before they came. And I I said, before the person brought the person who was paranoid, I said, I don't understand schizophrenia yet scripturally, although I do now. But back then, I didn't have a clue. But I said, paranoia, I think I can get a handle on that because paranoia sounds to me like fear. Paranoia sounds to me like not just fear, because a lot of people can have fear and it wouldn't be labeled paranoia, but it's, it's a fear that seems to have someone in bondage. That's a biblical word. They're dominated by the fear. Uh, you know, and the more I began to relabel it scripturally, the clearer it got. And when the paranoid person came in, I was ready. I understood the problem biblically, began to address it biblically. I want to tell you, paranoid schizophrenia, this case, I had five counseling sessions completely free. Changed life. He was going to be institutionalized before he came to see us. And a friend said, can we try biblical counseling first before he goes into the institution? They said, we don't care. You want to try what you want, but he needs to be in an institution. Five counseling sessions. It's not me. It's this. So we who are strong need to bear with the failings of the weak. In verses, uh, the next ones, uh, verse 4 and 5, or three, uh, yeah, Christ didn't please himself, but verse 4, for whatever was written in former days, listen, are you got your Bibles open? Look at this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, now watch, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together with one voice you'll glorify the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is saying Romans, and he's saying this to us. The whole Old Testament was written 
for you Romans, for you here, for me, so that we might have hope, so that we could endure this life in an encouraging way, and we can encourage one another who are struggling with living in a sin-cursed world. Don't we need help with that? Nobody has a perfect marriage. Nobody that's raising kids has it all go smoothly. Nobody that's single is having everything go the way it should go. We're living in a sin-cursed world. We are struggling all the time with temptations to be worried about things, anxious about things, depressed about things. It's common in this life, but Christians, you see, have the answers. Christians have, God says, through Christ and the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, we have what it takes to make it through this world and get victory. We have we have hope for every circumstance. I, I don't know where you're at in your life this morning. Maybe you don't have much hope about certain things in your life. Maybe you have a wayward child. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you know people who are struggling. Maybe you have physical issues. It doesn't, I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. All those things are, the question is, where's your hope? Do you have hope about it? Maybe you've lost hope. You know, Proverbs 13, 12 says, um, hope deferred, you know this one, right? Makes the heart sick. But desire that's fulfilled is a tree of life. So when, when we're looking forward to something, we have hope that something is going to get better, turn out different, change, and it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, we lose hope. Our heart gets sick, metaphorically. We become less motivated to hang in there. We tend to give up. Almost all divorces happen because somebody gave up. They just gave up hope and they gave up trying. But the Bible says the whole Old Testament was written to give us hope. And then he says, I I love this verse, verse 13, after quoting some of the Old Testaments to show that the Gentiles are to be included. And I don't know, I think we're all Gentiles here in this room. We're all Gentiles. We were grafted in, as you know, so that we too could praise God and extol God and glorify God. In verse 12, Isaiah said, in him the Gentiles hope. This word hope pops up through this chapter a number of times. And then in verse 13, he says it this way, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Think about this verse, piece by piece. May the God of hope. Have you ever thought about God with that title? You know, most of us know God is an awesome God. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of love. But how often do we think God of hope as a label, as a title for God? He's labeled that. He's the God of hope. How can we not have hope no matter what circumstance we're in? When God who is faithful to us promises us that he would never, ever, 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 ever put us in a situation that he knows we couldn't handle, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation that's overcome you that isn't common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to bear, but with every temptation, with every trial, Every tribulation that you're in, he provides the way for you to handle it successfully. 
In fact, in the Greek, when it talks about that you might bear up under, it means to get under a load that you're supposed to carry. Get up under, put it on your back, lift it up, and you walk the distance you're supposed to walk with that particular load until you're supposed to deliver it there. A lot of people, when they're in trials, they think the way God's going to help me through this is, get me out of this now! Emergency! Take it away! No, when he allows a trial, it's a trial that you're to carry, and your burden is light. Matthew, your, your burden is light and you carry it the distance and you glorify God and you learn something about God and you learn something about you and changes are made and you come out victorious. We have hope because God is faithful. And he says the whole Old Testament is given to us to provide that hope that motivates us to get involved in trials of our own life successfully, that we conquer our problems, we overcome our anxieties, we overcome our depression, and we have a testimony, not just that Jesus saved us 25 years ago. We have testimony that God delivered me from depression yesterday, took all of my anxieties away a week ago. We have testimonies that are unending because our God is powerful. And how do you see that in the Old Testament? Well, you know, the, old, the whole Old Testament gives us hope in one simple way. Just read it and you'll see continuous stories of God at work being faithful with his people. Story after story after story of people getting in trouble with their own sins, causing their own miserable situation by the things that they've done. Isn't that true for some of us? All of us. We sometimes cause our own problems. Is that right? Have you seen that enough about yourself or you still need to live a little longer? We also have problems because of stuff other people do, don't we? We have oppressors, we have enemies, we have friends that sometimes act like enemies. We have, well, they had all of that in the Old Testament. And whether they caused their own problems or they were caused by the Hittites, the the, uh, stalactites or the stalagmites, I don't know, whatever they were caused by, God was there for his people, loving them, patient with them, giving them grace, spanking them when it was their own problem so they could learn, causing them to grow, to trust him more. Boy, the Old Testament could give you great hope because I don't care how bad you've messed up your life or how bad somebody else has messed up your life. You should have hope. Look what God has done all through history since the very beginning. Hope, hope for your problems. Now, you know, you may not be of the mind of wanting to counsel other people. You may not be capable of counseling schizophrenia at this point in your life. (laughs) But you ought to be able to give people hope. Your friends hope. You ought to start with that. Somebody that's struggling and encouraging them by hope. Give them hope based upon your relationship to Christ. And if you're struggling with problems, and most of us are, and I've only named a few, but whatever problems that are out there, whatever disorders or fancy names that are out there, as long as they're not organically caused. I mean, you've got a real problem in your body, and some of the disorders are debatable about that, and we'll help you understand that in the training classes in the future, how to tell the difference. But uh, most of these problems are not physical problems. They're soul problems. And boy, you know, if you're struggling, I want you to have hope whether it's bipolar or any kind of depression or anxiety or fears or worries or or anger issues, you're going to learn how to help yourself by the power of the Spirit conquer those problems. You'll be free. I mean, many people come to our training for themselves, only for themselves. It's like discipleship. 
How do I handle these problems in my life? How do I handle this problem in my relationship with so-and-so? You learn that kind of stuff right from Scripture. And many of you will say, you know, this God's been so good to me and God's shown me so much. I'm going to help some other people too because I'm strong now and I need to bear with others who are struggling, who are weak. And Paul said to me, not just to the Romans, that since I have the Spirit and I'm the brethren and I'm filled with goodness, which means I have a good heart now because God's given me a good heart and I do want to serve and be a blessing and I'm filled with knowledge, well, I'm, I guess I've got enough knowledge because I've got as much as the Romans have got, if not more, and I'm getting some training that helps me understand problems even better than I did and understand the Bible better than I did so I can use the Bible in the power of the Spirit to help and it's working in my life, then doggone it. I must be competent to do some counseling too. And if God drops counseling situations in my lap, I'm going I'm to take them on. I'm going to help people. just like I've been helped. That's the vista I want to show you this morning. First, that you, you can have hope for yourself. In God. In His Word. And you don't have to look at, to the world. You don't have to be like this. I can't wait to see what Dr. Phil says today. I can't wait to read Oprah's next selection. There's, there's emptiness out there, brothers and sisters. It's this we should salivate about. It's this. Psalm 1. Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Meditate on this day and night, and you'll be like a tree with fruit. It's the Bible. It's always been the Bible. It's always been God. He's the counselor. This is the counseling book. And you're the counselors to counsel yourselves as well as each other. That's the way it was originally set up. One more verse and, and I'll wrap. Colossians 3.16, one of my favorite verses. Brethren, he says to Colossians, just like he's talking to the Romans, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly so that you will be able to nutheteo one another. Counsel one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Warn one another. Whatever it's, whatever's needed so that you can help brethren grow in Christ and change and realize that the God that they know and serve, they need to know better. He's a God of hope. He's a God of victory. He's a God of change. He makes us more like Christ. He gives us as... Uh, Verse 13 says, He will fill us with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Joy and peace. Peace and joy. Sounds like a good title for a book. And God gives us peace and joy in believing, in believing God, that He's a God of hope, that He's got the answers for our problems. And not just the God of hope, but notice how He ends that verse that we may abound in hope. It's not just that God wants you to have a little bit more hope so you'll hang in there. He wants you to abound in hope. And you got hope overflowing in your life. So much so that just you being around people who are struggling when you're strong, they get hope. It's natural. It's supernatural. It's for you. It's for me. I'm hoping that even today somebody is thinking, I've got to get hope in Christ. 
I'm, I'm going to hang in there. I need to learn some things maybe. I need to make some changes. But there's no sense in me as a Christian staying in this miserable condition that I'm in when God himself has provided the answers, paid the price for those answers, put the power for me to be responsible to do what I'm supposed to do about in me, I better take advantage of that so I can demonstrate more fully to my lost neighbors and friends about Jesus. They'll want what I have. And I'm also hoping that many of you are going to say, I need to come to these courses in September so I can learn how to use the Bible to solve problems. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are our hope. We shouldn't look anywhere else but to you and to your word. I don't know why it is other than we still have the remnants of the fallen nature in us so that we often think that the world has more than it really does. It seems to be attractive. It seems to be willing to provide us pleasures and answers. And there are multitudes of answers out there. But Father, we so often forget that you are the answer. You're the connection. Forgive us when we have turned what the world offers into our source for happiness and joy and peace and even understanding when we've neglected what you have said and placed your word and your very person to the side. Bring in our minds, Lord, Jesus back to a place of supremacy. Bring, Lord, your word back to the place of it being the only as well as the key source of instruction and wisdom and counsel for our lives. Help us to see the Bible is not just a book that tells us how to get to heaven but how to live victoriously in this life, in a sin-cursed world. And it motivates us to share the good news with others. May you be glorified, Lord, by our response to this message today. In Jesus' name.